would ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the fourth chapter of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 4. I'm going to read the first four verses and let you know that these four verses are actually the the last part of the first major section of the book of Jeremiah. Just why they divided it up the way they did in our Bibles, I'm not really sure. But um, with uh, verse 5 of chapter 4, you have um, something of a completely new um, uh, thing that enters into the picture. Uh, These four verses really do conclude uh, the previous section. Uh, We're told here, if you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, To me you should return, if you remove your detestable things from my presence, and do not waver, and if you swear as Yahweh lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Interesting, this first section ends with the first mention of the divine wrath, of divine anger against Judah for their sins and for their transgressions. And you'll notice that uh, the next section really begins with that wrath being revealed in terms of the um, trumpet being blown through the land and the assembling of the enemies of, the, of Judah against it. And so you see the display of wrath that follows. But the concluding note is the anger of God against the unfaithfulness of the covenant people, the nation that he betrothed himself to. He entered into a marriage covenant with this nation. And really the first opening chapters is a story of unrequited love. God loved Israel, he loved his people, and he, he espoused himself to them. And though there was a season in which things looked bright and looked like things were to be happy, and they seemed to go after him in the wilderness, at least in terms of that generation that entered into the land of promise, learning, obedience in the disciplines that the wilderness brought, as we saw from the book of Deuteronomy, You find when they came into the land, immediately they're running after the Baals. They're running after the Canaanite gods. They demonstrate unfaithfulness to their covenant God. And so there is this failure to uh, see love reciprocated, love returned. God bestowed his blessings, entered into covenant with this people. And again and again and again and again, they violated the covenant. It's a shocking thing that the, not to be seen replicated among the nations that a people would change their gods for that which is not God but my people have committed two evils the Lord says they've forsaken me the fountain of living waters and they've hewed out for themselves cisterns broken cisterns that could hold no water and so the, the beginning picture is, is bleak it doesn't get much better in the next sections of the book of Jeremiah in fact the first 26 chapters of the book of Jeremiah is a real downer because it's God basically saying I am going in my wrath to dismantle all of the institutions in Israel that the people trusted in again remember the call of Jeremiah God said I'm going to send you on this mission in which you will do what well you're going to tear down you're going to overthrow there's four words that speak of dismantling 
You're going to break down. You're going to uproot. You're going to overthrow. You're going to destroy. And then you're going to build and you're going to plant. So all this old stuff that uh, didn't bear bear fruit for for God, didn't bear fruit in Israel, all of it's going to get dismantled. Their confidence in the temple, their confidence in, as we saw last week, the Ark of the Covenant, their confidence in all the institutions of religion, the external things that they prided themselves in. They said, we can't be destroyed. We got the temple. We got the priesthood. We got the kingship. We got all these things. God says, one by one by one by one, I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to obliterate it. All the things you, you, you trusted in. And then in the 26 through the remainder of the book, although not only, but mainly, there is the picture of building and planting, how God restores everything. And so that's something of the way in which Jeremiah is structured. Um, Again, in this first section, there is God's wrath revealed in the light of their covenant unfaithfulness. But at this point, there still is hope. There still is hope. I tried to emphasize that last week. Later on, there's little hope. When God says to Jeremiah, quit praying for this people. I mean, there's not much hope there if you're telling your prophet not to pray for them. There's not much hope that there's going to be any restoration short of uh, complete obliteration or at least captivity. The people being taken away in judgment of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, But yet we saw last week that there is still repentance offered. There's still hope that's given. And we looked at something of the way in which repentance can be realized in terms of just how what it looks like. That it looks like new leaders that God sends to the people. New loves that the people begin to express. New longings that they have. And new loyalties that they also express. And so those are the things we saw last week at the latter part of chapter 3. And as we come into chapter 4, it's really more of the same. There's still hope. There's still the hope that Israel will take seriously their, their, their crimes, their, their transgressions, their sins against God, and that they would be restored. Um, but you see, this restoration involves the people of Israel taking full responsibility for their sins, for their transgressions. And that's something of the hardest thing to do. You know, it's one thing to say, well, let's just trust that God will do something miraculous to change the whole picture. And sure enough, that's really what God does. You know, you come into the 31st chapter, and it's all what God says he will do. I will take out the stony... No, that's Ezekiel, I'm sorry. But I will put my law in their minds and in their hearts. I will uh, forgive their sins and their transgressions. I will do these things for them. And um, that's a great reality that God is the God who takes sovereign initiative in bringing his people back to himself. But along with the note of sovereign initiative, there is also the call of personal responsibility. The people of Israel must take responsibility for their own sins. They can't say, well, we'll wait for God to put his law in my heart and in my mind. Uh, you've got to break up the fallow ground, and you've got to circumcise your heart to be receptive to the word of God. And it's an interesting thing. In the book of Deuteronomy, you have both of those things. Deuteronomy, I believe it's in chapter 10, it says to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And then in chapter 30, it says that God will circumcise your heart. It's something God will do. It's God does that secret operation of the heart. And so it's both something we're called to do, and it's something that God sovereignly does. And those things happen again and again in the Bible. Um, remember when I was a young Christian, hearing a series of messages that Al Martin preached on the subject of the bridling of the tongue. 
And the way in which the scriptures both state that God is the one who puts a bridle on our tongues, and yet also that we are the ones responsible to bridle our own tongues. Well, who is it? Is it God or is it us? Well, actually, it's both. That we have a part in our own sanctification. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as God works in us to will and to work of his own good pleasure. Now, I grant you, our working is a result of God's working, but nonetheless, we are called upon to responsibly work. So there is this matter of personal responsibility that the scripture underscores. And so there is a word of responsibility that's given to both the kingdoms. Now again, at this point in time, Jeremiah's life and ministry, the northern kingdom has been destroyed for many years. It was taken into captivity in 722 BC. Uh, we're coming upon the Babylonian captivity, which was 150 years later, 586 BC. And so you don't really have an intact northern kingdom. But God has promises that are for Israel. And even though you just have mainly the tribe of Judah and uh, plus the stragglers from the other tribes, yet God it will reconstitute a nation. There will be a people that ultimately he will bring to himself. And ultimately that reconstituted nation he reconstitutes in Christ. Where there is a new Israel, a new, a new people of God, a new seed of Abraham um, um, that... Uh, you know, we see the holy city that will enter into the new Jerusalem that has as its uh, foundation the names of the twelve apostles, but I think it's on the gates of the, of, of, of the city, they're the name of the twelve patriarchs. So there is the reality that we are one people with the old covenant people of God. That, um, again, Jesus chose 12, chose 12 apostles. Why? Because, uh, well, 12 just seemed like a nice number? No. Uh, the people of Israel were constituted out of 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob, that uh, brought forth the 12 tribes that comprised the nation. So the 12 apostles is Jesus saying, in essence, I am forming a new Israel. I'm constituting a new nation. And so God's going to constitute a new nation ultimately in the new covenant. And so in anticipation of that, and also in the reality that there might have been some stragglers still from the northern tribes that were around at the time. Now we refer to them as the lost tribes of the house of Israel, but there could have been some stragglers who could identify themselves. I mean, Anna in the temple in, uh, when Jesus was dedicated is said to be from the tribe of Asher. There was a northern tribe woman from Asher who knew that she was of that particular tribe at the time of Jesus. So I'm sure at the time of Jeremiah, there may have been some northern kingdom people to be addressed. And so you have a word that's given to the northern kingdom in verse 1. If you return, O Israel, and then in verse 3, for thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. That's the southern kingdom. And both of them are addressed. And both of them are called to responsibility before God. And what are they responsible to do? And I had here a couple of little cards which had my basic outline on and I don't know what I did with them. Anybody see them? They were green cards. I probably stuck them in my Bible so I can't find them now. But I'm sorry? No, I had them here. I had them right up here. <laughs> okay. How about that? How about that? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
I would have probably remembered most of it, but it's nice to have it right here. Well, you know, there's a responsibility that the northern kingdom is given in the words of verse 1 and 2 that really is directed towards taking responsibility for covenant restoration. They've broken the covenant. they violated the covenant. Again, ultimately, God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31 tells us, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the wilderness, which my covenant they broke. They broke my covenant. They violated my covenant. They had responsibility to keep my covenant, to abide by my commandments, to keep my laws, and they didn't do it. And God says, I'm now going to make a new covenant. And Israel is now called to responsibility to renew the covenant with God. They're called to responsibility for covenant restoration. But there's a problem with these two verses. They're exceedingly difficult to translate. And many different, if we went around and just got the different Bibles, we probably have a different message that would be, and not really a different message, because it really comes down to the fact of covenant restoration at the end of the day. But just how that happens is not really clear. Because what there's a, a grammatical form that's being used here. Let me try to explain it to you. It's a conditional clause. It goes in the direction of if this, then that. If you do this, then God will do that. If this occurs, then that's the result. But the problem is, when does the if end and the then begin? That's the problem. And you know, a lot of places in the Old Testament, you have that problem with these conditional clauses. When does the if part, it's called the protasis, that's the technical name for it, it's a protasis. It's the the part of a conditional clause that says, this is what you're responsible to do. If you do this, then the other part comes in, and that's called the apodosis. I'm sorry, I didn't make it up. It's something that's there in how this grammatical form is used, the apodosis. The apodosis is then, then. This is the thing that will eventuate. This is the thing that will occur. But where does the if part end, and where does the then part begin? Where does protasis end and apodosis begin? Hard, hard to say exactly. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go with at least what at this point, I think it probably is, I'll probably think about it for two weeks and come up with a different point of view. <laughs> That's probably always, always true. But at this point, I'm thinking that there's probably four things that God tells Israel they have to do to achieve the end of covenant restoration. And so it begins in verse 1. And it's not so much, I don't think even ESV has it that way. I think it has two ifs and then... Um, Oh, no, it does. Actually, it probably does have four ifs. Okay, well, let's begin. If you return, that's the first thing. If you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh. Again, the people had departed. They left Yahweh to worship the Baals. They apostatized. They're guilty of moving away from covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness to their covenant king. And God says, if you return, if you return, I'll give you the shepherds that will teach you well. He spoke about leadership. He spoke about longings. He spoke about loves. He spoke about loyalty. If these things impress themselves on your heart, if you're left, if you're led wisely and well, probably in this context, follow Jeremiah. He's, he's the prophet that's worthy to follow. He's the teacher that will lead you well. Follow the teachers that are teaching God's word. And then come to that place of deep longings to be 
following after the Lord and loving him and being loyal to him. If this occurs, you'll return to me, O Israel. And if you return to me, to me you shall return. It's interesting that he says, if you return, to me you shall return. In other words, avoid the Avoid the danger of saying, okay, we have apostatized, we've left the Lord, we're in a bad way, and we realize we're in a bad way, and we know we have to leave where we are, but let's go and find some other place to go. You know, okay, this uh, Baal worship isn't working out, so let's go and see what Babylon has to offer. You know, let's go join the Moonies. <laughs> let's go join, let's go seek out Buddhism, or let's go uh, do something else. If God says, well, God says, if you return, if you realize the desperate condition your own sins and transgressions have brought you to, and you realize you can't stay where you are, and you know you've got to turn someplace, don't turn anywhere else but to me. Return back to me. To me, you should return. And again, not just to the temple, not just to the things of old covenant religion but to the God of the things not just to the church or to the people or to the sacraments or to the law or to the day or to the other things of the Lord that we so highly prize so often but to the God of the things Go to not just to the things but to the God who has ordained and instituted the things return to me make it a personal bond with the God of the covenant, because that's what the covenant is. It's a personal bond with the God who in love has betrothed Israel to himself. And so there needs to be a return back to him. And then in returning to him, there's the call, secondly, to remove your detestable things from my presence. And the detestable things, most likely, are their idolatries. All of the emblems, all of the... um, things associated with the idolatries, the idolatrous practices of worshipping the Baals. you got to put it away. you got to remove it. There can't be anything that continues to be brought into this new, renewed relationship with the God of the Covenant. It has to be wholehearted, whole-souled return. Nothing of the former things can you bring into this relationship. And then you're not to waver. You can't waver. This is the picture that uh, you see on Mount Carmel when Elijah confronts the people and says, how long do you halt between two opinions? How long do you go back and forth between two opinions? You, worship, you want to worship Yahweh, but you know, maybe Baal has some good things to offer. Maybe if Yahweh doesn't answer my prayers here, Baal might. And you're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's a picture of manifest instability. God says this return that puts away the detestable things is a return to him with wholehearted commitment and stability not to waver. The loyalty is full and complete and uncompromised commitment. And then if you swear... And again, part of Old Testament religion is calling upon the name of God to bear witness upon our intentions, upon our promises, to take vows in his name, and then to keep those vows. 
Well, if you make these vows, the vow of returning, the vow of commitment, the vow of loyalty, the, 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 the vow to, uh, to continue to serve, um, if you call upon God's name and you say, as the Lord lives, it has to be in reality. It can't be in pretense. That was the lingering danger in all these sections that speak about repentance is that you're not clear. Uh, are these people really ever serious about returning to God? It doesn't appear to be. It appears that there's a pretentious uh, going through the motions of religiosity and not a clear-cut returning to God. And so the call is to swear by his name in truth. That speaks of reality, injustice, not looking just for your own things, but looking to give everyone their due, everyone their right. And then in righteousness, in conformity to the commandments of God and to the standards of God revealed in his holy will and in his holy ways. If you do these things, if you return, if you remove the detestable things, if you remain and don't waver, if you swear with integrity, with truthfulness and justice and righteousness being the elements that inform your worship and your relationship uh, to the God of the covenant, then, then, what will result? The Abrahamic covenant will be restored or renewed. What was the Abrahamic covenant? God said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Or sometimes it's the nations of the earth will bless themselves. They'll bless themselves that they know Israel. Israel has come and brought a godly influence. Introduced them to their God, the God of the covenant. The blessings come to the nations through Israel. The nations bless themselves and receive the blessing of God because of Israel's fidelity to the God of the covenant. Israel's conformity to the God of the covenant. Israel fulfilling its calling, its mission to be a blessing to the nations. Instead of Israel being cursed among the nations and having the nations attack them, and spoil them and take away their treasures and take away their goods. Israel is going to be God's channel for universal blessing, the extension of his reign and his kingdom and all the earth through the nation of Israel. That's what the Abrahamic covenants declared God was going to do. God so loved the world that he called Israel and set them apart and made them a holy nation. He thought I was going to say, God still loved the world, and he sent his only begotten son. No, no. That's what he did when Israel failed to keep their the promise. They, what they did when they failed to keep their calling. What Israel failed to do, Jesus does. Make disciples of the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The blessing of Abraham comes to the nations now through, through, through the church, through the gospel through the people whom Jesus sends into the world with his saving message. That which Israel did not do, Jesus does, is the true Israelite who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, the true son of Abraham, who brings the blessing of Israel, the blessing of God uh, to the nations. 
And so that's the first point of responsibility that God declares that his people must assume, they must embrace, they must take hold of this responsibility to live before him in this way that is a way of return and removing and remaining and living in integrity in our worship and in our vows before him. And that's still true. If we would be a blessing to the nations, we need to live that kind of life. The nations look upon the church and see all of its inconsistencies, see its half-heartedness, see its failure to be committed to the things they say they believe and, and love, and they mock and they scorn and they say, what in the world does Christianity have? They're just as worldly, they're just as carnal, they're just as bent upon their own riches, their own pleasures, their own desires, and they have every right to say, what in the world does the church have that's different from the nations? When the church... People of the church divorce about the same rate as the people of the world. The people of the church commit adultery about the same rate as the people of the world. The people of the church commit graft and, and financial misconduct and are, are, are you know, pilfering from the, from the church fund and lining their own pockets and after material things just as much as the people of the world. church won't be taken seriously instead of being a channel of blessing to the nations the nations will simply scorn and mock and blaspheme the name of our God we need to take responsibility to live the life we're called to as those called into covenant with God through the blood of Christ through the work of Christ for us uh, to live in the way that Israel's called upon to live, to take responsibility, uh, to return, to remove, to remain, and to live in integrity. Well, what about Judah? What about Judah? Well, verse 3. For thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. What are they called to? Well, if Israel is called to take responsibility for covenant restoration, Judah is called to take responsibility for spiritual receptivity. How about that? Spiritual receptivity. We need not only covenant restoration to be in covenant with God in integrity and in commitment, but we also need to have spiritual receptors that are able to receive from the Lord um, the riches that he has for us. Uh, Paul can express it in the way in in his prayer for the Ephesian Christians that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened that they may know, that they may know. Well, there are obstacles in the way of God's people knowing, God's people understanding, of God's people perceiving, of God's people being sensitive to spiritual things and spiritual realities. And at the end of the day, it's all a question of the heart. Really, it's all the question of the inner life. And so, there's two images that are used. One's taken from agriculture, and I'm not a farmer. I don't know that much about land lying fallow and the result of it. But I tried to at least do some reading on this subject. I always fear when I get into these things about things like land management and stuff like that, how crops were rotated and land is lying fallow and the 
effect it has upon you know the, the produce and land efficiency and things. I know there's truth that's there, but I don't know those truths. Nothing I've really ever studied, but uh, I know the Bible is, is, is right on it. it. You know, one of the reasons God says every seven years the land was to lie fallow was because that land was to be productive and to just keep using it again and again and again, year after year after year after year. I mean, we see it today in our own problems with agriculture is that the land gets overused and overgrown and uh, uh, sadly it's not as productive as it once was so that you have to get human growth hormones into the project in order to get the land to yield what it formerly would yield. you got to introduce new things into the soil um, because we're, again, the, most, most of it is just greed. Most of it is just we want, we want you know, profits and we want profits today. Well, God said every seven years you can't, you can't put seed into the ground. You got to let that land lie fallow. That means you can't you can't uh, grow anything on it. You got to let it, whatever it grows grow of itself, and that's good for the land. And it's good for the people to trust that the God who tells you don't put seed into the ground that year, don't do what they're doing out here every day when they're bringing the the honey trucks in to to dump the manure and to put the seed down for the the crops that they're hoping to grow. You're not to do that in Israel. Every seven years, the ground is to be left alone. Trust God that what will grow will be sufficient for your needs as the land lies fallow. One of the things that happens when land lies fallow is that other things grow other than the things that you've seeded. You've not, you've not plowed it for the year. Um, and so other things will grow. Weeds will grow. Thorns will grow. Briars will grow. And so there's a need when the land is not in the best condition once it's been laying, laying fallow is to get out there the next year and start harrowing, start plowing, start doing what's needed to do so that the, when the seed is entered into the ground it will bear fruit. And so, you got to break up the fallow ground, the ground that's been left alone, the ground that's not been cultivated. And then you're not to sow among the thorns. You got to weed out the thorns. You got to pull them out. And you got to do the work of making the land um, fit for the seed to be entering. Well, those agricultural images uh, are taken up in Scripture over and over again with reference to the way in which our hearts relate to the things of God, to the Word of God. Our hearts can be not accustomed to be plowed up and, and, and able to receive with receptivity and with spiritual awareness and with meekness of heart and mind the Word of God. Break up that fallow ground um, you know, Jesus says when the seed is sown of the kingdom, the way in which it prospers all depends upon the state of the soil. You got to make the state of your heart to be that which is receptive to the things of God's word. And when the heart is hardened and the heart is not sensitive to the things of God, there will not be the receiving of the word of God. 
And one of the things I didn't do is I didn't put in the cross-references in which this image is taken up in other places, but you can look it up on your own. But that's what the image indicates. The image indicates that as you would cultivate the land for the reception of seed, that the seed might grow in the most effective and um, the most beneficial way in in, in yielding the, the greatest harvests. So our lives should be just that way. Bringing forth fruit unto God. Bringing forth harvests of righteousness. Bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit in love, joy, peace. And everything depends upon the state of the heart, the state of the soil. Whether our hearts are rightly disposed towards God. And so if the heart is hard and the heart is is not been broken up and, and, and thorns have grown and the things of the world we delight in more than the things of God you got to do some serious work in plowing up the heart and breaking up the fallow ground or else the seed of the word will not be beneficial will not profit you and what is expressed in this agricultural image is also expressed in terms of this religious ritual of circumcision the call is to circumcise yourselves to Yahweh and to remove the foreskin of your hearts now it's interesting to look at how scripture addresses the matter of circumcision of course it is a right a physical activity that you do in taking away the the foreskin from the private part of the male Uh, usually the eighth day in Israel that the seed of Abraham was to be circumcised and there was that uh, skin that was hard many times uh, not easily retracted and sometimes gives problems sometimes brings disease although they say today it's not necessary to to circumcise your children unless it's for religious reasons I don't want to get into that debate. But the point is, in the ancient world, it, it, it was done and it became in Israel a sign of consecration to God. And it was a sign of God's work of circumcising the heart. That there is, as the private member of the body had its hard covering removed. So the hard covering of the heart, the private member within the soul, God would remove. And so again, uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 30. There's, uh, there's two references in the book of Deuteronomy uh, to the circumcision of the heart. Uh, one is in chapter 10 where it almost echoes what we find in Jeremiah. And again, we're back to the fact that Jeremiah really does bring much of the language and concepts of the book of Deuteronomy in his prophecy. And again, I think that's because, remember when we introduced the book, I, I thought, I'd, remember I told you that the, the, the Jeremiah's beginning his ministry during the time of the revival of Josiah's, Josiah's day. And what happened then? They, well, the priests went into the temple, they found the book of God, and they brought out the book of God. And they read the book of God and they realized they were sinning against this God and his judgments would be against them. And there was that, re, re, that, there was that reformation of true religion that came in the days of Josiah. And uh, 
it was probably the book of Deuteronomy they found in the, te- in the temple because it was, it was that book of the law that God said you to copy out and you to place in the temple. So largely what they found was probably what we have in our Bibles is the book of Deuteronomy. And so I think, again, it was in, Josiah's, in Jeremiah's time that that book was, 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 was recovered. And it's interesting that Jeremiah says in chapter 15, your words were found. He didn't say your words were, came to me. If it was new revelation, it's always the word of the Lord came to the prophet saying. But Jeremiah speaks of when your words were found. When were the words found? Well, they were found by Hokiah, the priest, when he was cleaning the temple and restoring the temple. Your words were found. And Jeremiah says, I ate them. I took the words of the book of Deuteronomy and I, I ate them. Uh, metaphorically, I digested them. The words were, you know, became to be the joy of rejoicing of my heart. And it was probably Deuteronomy that really framed so much of Jeremiah's outlook. And sure enough, in chapter 10 of the book of Deuteronomy, you see the call now Israel what does the Lord your God require of you this is a passage we looked at over the summer remember chapter 12 those five things that the Lord requires of you the central thing is to love him and then the constellation of other responsibilities around the command to love but then in the words of verse um, 16 he says circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn again it was a question of spiritual awareness and spiritual receptivity and spiritual sensitivity to the words and will of God. They were stubborn. They were stiff of neck. They were hard of heart. And God says you got to pull away the, the foreskin of the heart, the hardening of the heart that fails to give, to yield receptivity to God's word and God's will and God's ways so that you're not walking in His ways and you're not serving Him and you're not loving Him and you're not fearing him and you're not keeping his commandments and statutes you got to have a circumcised heart and God says in chapter 30 that that's exactly what he will do again it's really not you can't really take out a, a heart of stone on your own and give yourself a heart of flesh but certainly you can realize the problem seek the Lord for the solution and the Lord is the one who provides the solution and I believe it's in chapter 30 that, um, yeah, here it is, chapter 30, uh, in verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. In chapter 10, he says, You do it. And here it says, God will do it. God will do it. Really, only God ultimately can change the heart, circumcise the heart, make it pliable, make it obedient, make it sensitive to the things of his word. The Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You need to have that hardness of heart removed. But you know this idea of the circumcision of the heart is also that the heart would be in covenant with God. Because again, it was the circum- circumcision was the mark of the covenant with God, the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. It was the mark, we are the covenant people of God. And it's, dem- it's demonstrated externally in the foreskin of our flesh, but it's to be demonstrated internally with the heart fully consecrated, fully yielded, fully committed to the God of the covenant. It's always interesting how it not only does it speak about the circumcision of the male member and the circumcision of the private part of the soul and the heart, 
But it also speaks of the circumcision of the ears. Uh, yeah, it does. In, uh, in Jeremiah 6, I believe this statement is made about the circumcision of the ears. Um, I don't know if my eye can cast upon it. Oh, chapter 6 is a big chapter. But somewhere in there it does speak about the circumcision of the ears. You could check it in a concordance, but my eye's not fallen upon it. But to have an uncircumcised ears is to not hear God's word. Remember Jesus said, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have uncircumcised ears, you have ears that are not accustomed to listening to the voice of God. It's not accustomed to receiving the word of God. It's not accustomed to, 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 to um, yielding obedience to the will of God. I'm sorry, which is it? Ten. Well, I was looking at nineteen when it says, "Here, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they've rejected it. They're not hearing." Verse ten. Let's look at that. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. They're covenant breakers, not covenant keepers. They're not be having the marks of covenant loyalty to God and covenant love in the embrace of a relationship of that covenant love that the believer has with his God. And the evidence of it is their ears are uncircumcised. Their ears don't respond to God's word. Their ears reject God's word. Moses speaks in Exodus about, Lord, don't send me. I have uncircumcised lips. <laughs> uncircumcised lips. What does that mean? Again, it's a very difficult imagery to conjure up uncircumcised lips. But the, the point of it is that, well, it may have been that you felt, look, i got thick lips, or i got too much skin on my lips that I can't speak. But he's probably thinking, I'm not the one to speak the message of the covenant of God to the nations, or to Pharaoh, or to your own people. It's a matter of being fit as a covenant loyal, in covenant loyalty to the God of the covenant to be worthy to speak in his name. Because it's speaking his words. And so I guess Moses was gripped with the thought, I'm just not the one to do this. I'm not the one capable of being so committed to the God of the covenant that I could speak loyally his words. Uh, to his people and to Pharaoh but it's a mark of the covenant it's a mark of covenant commitment circumcise yourselves to the Lord remove the foreskin of your hearts O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem take responsibility to receiving God's words with spiritual receptivity breaking up the fallow ground removing the foreskin of your hearts there's images that speak of the fact that it's the inner life that's the vital thing of being able to be receptive to God's word and to be loving God's will and walking in God's ways so that's what it means to take responsibility as a covenant partner with God. It means we do what Israel's called to do. Return. Remain. 
don't waver, live in integrity. It means address the issues of the heart that block the path of God's word to your soul. Break up the fallow ground that might receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save your soul, that's able to sanctify, that's able to build you up. Take away the foreskin of the heart, everything that is antithetical to glad reception of God's word. Rip it away, take it away. It's not worth receiving. It's not worth remaining in your life. It's not worth anything that's good. And then there's a word that speaks of God's wrath that will go forth like fire. If these words addressed to Israel and Judah are not obeyed, if they will not take responsibility for covenant restoration and responsibility for spiritual receptivity, the result will be they remain in their sins. They remain in their guilt. They remain in covenant disloyalty. They remain under divine wrath. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God cannot look upon the evil of the deeds of the evil deeds of his people with indifference. His wrath will burn and they're called upon then to address these matters of life that will bring restoration to covenant faithfulness and bring restoration of spiritual receptivity. Again, those are words spoken to Israel, folks, but it's words easily applicable to each of us. May God give us ears to hear and give us a heart to obey. So we don't want his discipline. We don't, in a negative way, his chastening. Um, we want his blessings. We want his blessings in fullness. May we hear what the Lord spoke to Israel as words that were spoken, are spoken to us. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can spend time once more in the book of Jeremiah. And we're thankful, Lord, that there is rich instruction for your children today in these words spoken long ago to the nation of Israel. It's part of the, your counsel. It's part of the truths of Scripture that are able to make us wise for salvation and able to build us up in our faith and able to teach us uh, your will and your ways. So we pray for ears to hear and hearts to obey the things that you have spoken uh, to your people of old and yet still speak by your Spirit to your people in Scripture today. We're thankful for this Lord's Day you've given us. We're thankful for the blessings we've known, the fellowship we've enjoyed with one another. We're thankful for the greatness of your love, the expressions of kindness that you demonstrate to us day in and day out. And we pray, Lord, that in the week that is before us, we would abound in the fruits of righteousness that are through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of your name. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the light as you are in the light that we would have fellowship one with another and, with, and that the blood of Jesus Christ would cleanse us from all of our sins. We pray that you'd hear our prayers. We pray that you'd bless us as your people as we'd ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.